So I want you to imagine that you are on a road trip with one or two other people. You may be the driver, you may be the passenger, but you're on a road trip. You're driving in, in South Texas in July, and maybe your driver or maybe you are like me in that you try to go as far as you can on a tank of gas and try to stretch it. And you pass by several gas stations and rest stops that are are well established, and then you eventually get to a point of desperation, and you have to stop at a place that you're not even sure is open or still operational. Okay, so you pull into that area, you're, you finally make it, you're like, okay, you, you realize there's somebody there, and so you, have, you can pay somebody for the gas, and you, the person you're with starts pumping the gas, and you get out of the car to stretch because you've been driving for several hours, and you're, you're really thirsty because it's Texas in July. And so you're standing there, it's 110 degrees, but they don't have like an inside area at this gas station. So everything's on the outside and there's a vending machine out there and it's a Snapple vending machine. Okay? So you're standing there and you're like, you know, I haven't had Snapple for a while. And you, you look and, and the Snapple uh, flavor of your choice, for me, it's the, the peach tea. Maybe for you, it's the pink lemonade. But you select your, your Snapple beverage that's cold you take it out, you open the top, you take a couple of swigs of it, and you're like, oh, that's refreshing. And then you look at the cap. And underneath the cap, it says that on average, every day, Americans consume 16 acres of pizza. <laughs> and first you're like, well, is that, is that true? And you're like, well, I mean, it's, it's written on this cap. There must be some truth to it. And then you start walking to the car, and this is where the decision comes. Do you share that tidbit of information with the other passenger in the car? Well, do you? I do. I'm like, that's, that's remarkable. I wonder what they think. And so you share the information. And this is exactly what the executives at Snapple want you to do. In 2002, they did some market research at Snapple. They had to kind of relaunch their brand. And this marketing executive realized, after looking at some sociology and looking at how people are wired, that people generally like to be remarkable. We like to be interesting. We like to be able to share information that is remarkable because that somehow reflects on us that maybe we're remarkable. And so they started this campaign, and it's been going, it's still going now. You can go get a Snapple. I'm not getting, this is not a paid endorsement, by the way. But you could go get a Snapple, open it, and there will be a fact. There's hundreds and hundreds. There's a website dedicated to just the facts, the real facts of Snapple. You can see things like a glass ball will bounce higher than a rubber ball of the same size. I mean, there's all kinds of them that a raindrop falls on average about seven miles per hour. I mean, these just random facts. But what Snapple dialed into is that we are creatures of story, and we like to think about our story and how we can advance our story. I don't know if you were like me as a kid, but I always desired to have a theme song play when I would just walk around in life. I would love to have a theme song when I entered a room and music starts playing. I may be alone in that. Some of the guys are like, yeah. But we are wired for stories, and that's not 
an accident, it's by design. Over 75% of this book, God's revelation to us, is in the format of narrative, story. Jesus taught in parables, stories. We resonate with stories. They convey meaning. They help us understand value. And so we are, are wired for these stories. And so we're always trying to craft and create our story. That's why social media is so popular, because you can craft and create and shape what pictures, what stories, what adventures you go on, and it helps you create a narrative about your own life. And we can all identify portions or seasons in our life that change the trajectory of our story. There are things that happen in our life that are out of our control, and we go, I did not see that coming. And it almost shapes or redefines our story a little bit. For me, eight weeks ago, I stood on this stage and I had the opportunity to preach. Preached on Acts 17, Paul at the Oropagus, how to preach the gospel in a pluralistic society. I was getting ready to head off to Armenia and Ukraine, and I felt great. The very next day, I didn't feel great. Monday comes, Monday evening, I start to feel pain right here, right about where your appendix is. And it was a small, kind of subtle burning pain, and I thought maybe the pizza that I had just joined in the 16 acres of eating or something like that had started to disagree. And so I went to bed, woke up the next morning, the pain had increased. I wasn't sure what it was, so I contact my doctor start to describe this pain. I said, is it, you know, appendicitis? What's going on? And, and he said, no, it doesn't really, the, what you're describing doesn't sound like appendicitis. I think you'll be fine. And, and so later that day, the pain kind of subsided. And the next day, I hopped on a plane and went to Ukraine. Spent a day in, the, in Ukraine at the seminary there teaching, had a great time. Woke up the next day, because you lose a day in travel, so the next day was a Friday, had breakfast, and all of a sudden the pain came back. And the pain stuck with me for the rest of my trip, for the next seven days, as I traveled from Ukraine to Armenia, teaching every day, and all throughout the day, this excruciating pain continued to increase and spread, spread from this side over to this side, down into my lower back. I had no idea what it was. The worst thing you can do is go on WebMD and try to put in your symptoms, and then you have a whole list of things that it could be, and you're like, whoa, I should not have done that. There's a lot of things this could be. One of the things on that list was cancer, and I was like, no, that's not part of my story. I don't have cancer. So then I fly home, and I'm trying to find things that will help alleviate this pain. I'm taking ibuprofen. Uh, somebody had, had lent me some uh, antibiotics because maybe it was an infection. And so, and so I'm trying to deal with this the best way that I can. Nothing's alleviating my pain. It's always there, sometimes worse, sometimes not so bad. But then on the way home, it just can, continues to rise. I get home on a Saturday, come here on Sunday, the next day go to my primary care doctor, and I ask him, what's going on? Why am I in so much pain? He does an exam. He's like, I don't really know. Well, I had, on the books, I had a, an appointment at the urologist for Wednesday because I had noticed some things. So I go to the urologist first thing in the morning. 
They do an exam, and they said, what do you have going on the rest of today? I said, well, it depends on what you're about to tell me. And that's when they said, we have to do surgery immediately. So I go in. They said, call your wife. She needs to be here because you can't drive home. So they rush me into surgery. They remove a very uh, aggressive tumor from my body. And they said, here's what we know. You have cancer. It has metastasized to your lymph system and possibly your lungs. We just don't know what kind of cancer it is. And we won't know for two weeks because we have to do the pathology and study this thing. So there I am, just having had a tumor removed from my body. And they also said, sorry, but the pain that you're experiencing is from this cancer that is metastasized to your lymph system. And we can't We can't stop that pain right now because we don't know how to treat your cancer. So you're going to have the pain. We'll give you some pain meds, but because of where your pain is and where it's coming from, we can't take away your pain. We can only try to minimize your pain. So I'm on pain medication, and I've been given this news that now all of a sudden I have to come to grips with I'm the guy that has cancer. That's that's not been in my story so far. And so the first night was okay. Uh, I felt really confident. Lord, Lord had me. It was the second night after surgery that things weren't as okay. I, it was about three in the morning, and I just I couldn't sleep. I was in so much pain. And so I went out to my living room, leaned our lazy boy back to try to find a position to, to kind of try to alleviate the pain somehow, some way, and nothing would work. And so that's when the fear crept in. That's when I started to think about, okay, I'm 38 years old. I got three kids. What's going to happen? Why did they act so fast? What's, what do they, are, do they know stuff that they're not telling me about what I have? And they're just not ready for me to hear this news? What happens to my kids? How's this going to hit my wife? So I, I turn to the Scriptures. And I wasn't in a place where I wanted to read the Word, and so I just listened to it. I have an audio, an app on my phone that I can listen to the audio Bible. So I queue up Matthew 8. For some reason, that's where I was in my reading plan. And so I started listening, and I'm just laying there in pain, and I'm trying to listen to the Word of God just wash over me. And in Matthew 8, you have a couple of things play out. You have uh, Jesus healing lepers. You have Jesus healing the centurion's child from afar. You have Jesus calming the storm. You have Jesus casting out demons. And so you have all of these displays of the authority of Christ from the smallest cell in the human body and the ability to cast out the disease of leprosy to a grand scale calming hurricane force winds on an ocean and controlling nature to being able to exercise authority from afar and healing the centurion's child to healing immediately by touch, casting out demons and having authority in the supernatural realm, but also 
controlling storms and disease here in the physical realm. So, any possible arena in one chapter, Christ demonstrates He has absolute, complete authority. He's fed the 5,000, and so the, the crowds have recognized His authority. The feeding of the 5,000 scholars identify that in Matthew it says it was 5,000 men besides women and children, so scholars think it was more around the realm of 20,000 people gathered. That's half of, that's filling up half of the Astros Stadium, which can hold 40,000. That's a huge crowd. And so the masses have now recognized His authority, but right in the middle of Matthew 8, there's this passage, and it's, it's really short just a couple of verses, and a scribe comes to Jesus, and then a disciple comes to Jesus, both recognizing His authority and saying, we will follow you. And His response is interesting. He says, the scribe says, I will follow you. And He responds and says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay His head. And I was like, what a that seems really out of place. And then the next, the disciple says, I will follow you, but I, I need to go bury my dad. And he says, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. And I was like, man, that seems really callous. And I didn't really quite know what to do with that passage, but by that time, I had reconciled a couple of things. I had resolved that I'd, the Lord was telling me that he has absolute authority. I didn't know why he wanted me to go through this pain, but he was telling me, I need you to focus on what you know versus what you don't know. Right now, you're focusing on what you don't know, and you can't know. It's not for you to know what exactly this diagnosis is. It's not for you to know how long this is going to last, but you know me. I've revealed myself to you. I've clearly shown you I have authority. And you have no reason not to trust me because you know my character. I've never failed you. And so I resolved that night, okay, I'm going to focus on what I know and not what I don't know. The other thing that I focused on and resolved was that regardless, from this point on, whether in my life, or in my death, I would honor Him, and I wouldn't question Him. Regardless, if I was to live, then I would live to the extent of faith that I had every day, and if I died, I would go out in a way that honored Him, not questioning Him and His goodness. And then I went to sleep. The Lord blessed me with sleep that night. But for the next two days, I wrestled with that passage. Why, why did that scribe get the response he did, and why did that disciple get the response he did? And so I turned to the other place that this same scene occurs in Luke. And, and you get some different information in Luke. It doesn't contradict, it just fills in the story even more. And so I'd like to look there this morning and there's a few things that I think that we can take away that the Lord is teaching me, and then I'd like to talk about suffering, pain, and trials in the life of the Christian that emanates from this passage. Okay, so turn with me to Luke 
chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, we know from the Matthew passage that that individual was a scribe. This first individual is a scribe. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we have this episode, but we understand there was a, a third individual and a third response. So what do we make of these things? The first thing I was wondering, well, okay, what can I know about this first individual, the scribe? Why is it that Matthew gives us that detail? Why does he not just say some guy or a follower? And so if you turn over to Luke 20, it's interesting because we get some insight into scribes that Jesus gives us. And he warns his followers about the scribes. Now, it's, it's not necessarily that he's saying this about this particular scribe, but he's describing what scribes were understood to be like in general. And so, some of it must apply in this instance when Matthew gives us the indication that this first individual is a scribe. And Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so, what you realize is that this scribe, this is on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, all these miracles, and so this scribe has now come to recognize Jesus' authority and has realized it may be advantageous for me to kind of link my cart to Him because He clearly has authority. It may increase my stock too. And so, Jesus' response to him is very interesting and very telling because we learn from his warning about scribes that scribes loved to receive praise and honor and have the perception of high degree of status, long robes, greetings in the marketplace, best seats in the synagogues. They would make long prayers so that they would look like they were very religious that they had arrived. And so, status for the scribe was of great importance. That was their story. As they crafted their story, it was about status. And so, Jesus' response is essentially, foxes have homes, birds have homes, I don't. You follow me, you're going to be homeless. You follow me, 
and you're going to be homeless, which is not a very good status. You follow me, and you're likely to not receive the honor and the praise that you so desire. And so then to the second one. Second one, he says, I have to go bury my father. So we know that he's a son, and in Jewish tradition, it was the responsibility, in fact, the duty of the oldest son to take care of the burial of the parents. There were two kinds of burials at that time. There was an initial burial, and then almost a year later, there was a second burial. And so, what we understand here is is the response of this disciple is, Jesus, I I recognize your authority. I want to follow you. However, I have some other stuff that's a little more pressing. I have a responsibility, a duty to my family. And so, his story was shaped by the identity as an older son and a responsibility to fulfill the family duties within that culture. And that was taking priority over complete submission to Christ. That was his story. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their dead. You need to follow me immediately. That's, that's the idea here. And then the third one, he says, I- I'm going to follow you. I just need to go say goodbye to my home, to my family. And Jesus' response is, once you put your hand to the plow, you better not look back. You better stay focused on the task and on me, not back there. Not nostalgia, not pining for what was. And so each of these instances, it reveals an element of each of these people wanting to follow Jesus, where their true priority, where their identity was coming from, and that Jesus is telling them, you have to actually give up your identity And what you prize the most and what you have prioritized and shaped your story to mean, you have to give that up if you're going to follow me because I am your story. One of the things that the Lord was telling me is that, Chad, so far you've been very intent on crafting your story. And in those two days as I was chewing on this passage, he was convincing me that my story had to end and that his story would become my story. And that's true of every Christian. When Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and then ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within each Christian. And so we would become the body of Christ. And that reality means that the story of Jesus doesn't end with the ascension. But the story of Jesus sets the pattern and is actually continued through the body of Christ. And the pattern of Jesus' story we begin to recognize when we step back and look at the context of this passage. Yes, he was exercising great authority and great power, many signs and miracles. People were gathering. But something that you notice if you look at all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
is there is a trajectory shift in each of the Gospels. And it happens at the height of his popularity when the masses have gathered and are following him and he's getting into boats and he's having to hide away and pray because there's so many people following him and wanting his attention. There's this shift that happens. And we actually see it in the passage right before this one that we're looking at. Look with me up at 51. So again, this is after all of these great signs and wonders. Huge crowds are following him. And in 51 it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That phrase, his face was set to Jerusalem. In each of the synoptic gospels, there's this trajectory where he is ministering in his home region of Galilee, which is up of higher elevation. There is a distinct shift to when he begins his journey to Jerusalem. And what does Jerusalem mean? Jerusalem, there, there are many incredible parallels here, especially from the Old Testament. A journey to Jerusalem, you have uh, Galilee is up at higher elevation, Jerusalem is lower elevation, and so there's this coming down almost from the mount into Jerusalem that imitates Moses, that Jesus is the new Moses, the perfect Moses, bringing down God's rule and reign, His laws, fulfilling all the laws. Jerusalem is the, the city that David established as the capital, so the king that was after God's own heart established rule and reign, and we're told that there would be one like David that would come and so Jesus is entering Jerusalem, not only as the new Moses, but also as the David, the perfect forever king that God had established and told many, many years before. But there's something else that Jerusalem represents, because Jerusalem is the, is the location at which the King of kings and the Lord of lords would establish His reign through suffering, through death, and crucifixion. Jerusalem is a place of suffering, pain, and death. And there's an interesting trend that you see in these Gospels, that from the moment His authority is recognized, so you look in Mark chapter 8 and here in, in, in Luke and in Matthew, and Jesus asks, who do the crowd say that I am? And that's when the confession of Peter comes, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Well, they're saying, well, Elijah and other things, but he says, who do you say that I am? And that's when they confess and recognize his complete identity. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And then immediately thereafter, he will begin to talk to them about suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. He tells them, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. And we look at that, that phrase and we go, oh, we know what he meant. 
crucifixion, he was going to die. They didn't. That was, that was a foreign idea to them at this point. What do you mean take up your cross? Why would we take up a, Ro- a Roman form of execution daily? Well, it meant death. Not just any death, but a, a publicly humiliating death. Where your reputation, everything that you've built in your story would be for naught. Because that was an absolutely horrific way to die. And he's saying that's going to be the normative part of your life every day. You need to be willing to die and put aside your own reputation, your own self, your own story, and follow me. And so what happens is this trend that as soon as Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, the crowds begin to fall away. Until eventually, Jesus has arrived at the cross And we understand there to be only a few disciples left that are with him to the end. He goes from great popularity, at the height of his popularity, he begins to talk about suffering and he turns his face towards Jerusalem, the place of suffering and death where he will establish his kingdom, his rule and his reign forever. But why would he, who has absolute authority, Why do it through suffering? Why does that have to be the way? And as I was chewing on these passages, and I had asked the question, why why don't you just heal me? Why do I have to hurt like this? That's when I understood. That Jesus was telling me that I had to go to Jerusalem. That to follow him was to follow him all the way to Jerusalem. Not just part way. And to follow him to Jerusalem was a demonstration of genuine faith a creation of endurance and stamina to follow Him, and a willingness to say that my story has ended, your story is all that matters. And that there are certain things in your life, there's a kind of human being that God has created you to be that you can only become through suffering, through trials, And that when God says, I mean good for you, He does. He means ultimate good, that you will be like His Son. That you will desire the things of God, you will despise the things that are against Him, and that you will live a life full of love and obedience and faithfulness to the one true King. That's good. That's your ultimate good. And it can't happen because we live in a fallen world and we have fallen hearts. And so we have to travel all the way to Jerusalem and everything that that means. And so from this realization, I started to chew on suffering. I'm sitting there, and my story continues that after the pathology results came back and they told me what kind of cancer I had, that it was a very aggressive cancer that has metastasized, but good news is, the more aggressive, the better and easier it is to kill with chemo 
because chemo attacks rapidly producing cells. And so they said, it's good for you that you have really aggressive cancer. And I was like, I don't... <laughs> Is that a Snapple fact? I don't know. It sounds outrageous. But they said, your cancer will respond very well to the chemo treatments. And so we get the pathology results, and within three days, we had gotten into MD Anderson, and I was sitting in the office of the, the leading world expert on the specific cancer that I had. <laughs> Praise be to God. And he looked at me and he said, very good prognosis for you. Very good. Very confident. And he checked me into the MD Anderson Hospital and I began my first round of three treatments. Today marks the last day of my first round of three treatments. Hallelujah. So tomorrow I go back in. I'm actually completing my treatment at Texas Oncology in North Austin, and so I don't have to drive back to MD Anderson in Houston every day. I'll be there, and I begin uh, several hours a day for the next five days. I'll start the second round of chemo, uh, which will be roughly uh, 10 hours of chemo treatment a day for five days. And then I get two weeks to recover, even though each of those two weeks I have some other infusions to do. Um, so as, as my story continues, I get to continue to wrestle with pain and suffering. And so as I was sitting there in the hospital at MD Anderson, I had a lot of time on my hands. I mean, there's only so much Price is Right you can watch. And I didn't get sucked into any, uh, you know, soap operas or anything like that. And so I spent a lot of time in, in the Word, and I spent a lot of time in prayer. And there's interesting that the amount of passages that I have read many, many times in my life, but just kind of skimmed over elements of them that had to do with pain and suffering. And so I want to share with you just a few insights uh, that the Lord has given me, because the reality is, as Kevin said two weeks ago when he was talking about Jesus calming the storm, is you're either in front of a storm about to happen, you're in a storm that is happening, or you've just come out of one. Which means the first thing we have to understand in the Christian life is that pain and suffering, trials, storms, whatever you want to call them, are normal. We live in a society and in a culture driven by the desire for comfort we seek to avoid pain any way we can. We like comfort and ease, which there's nothing wrong with that. It feels a lot better than pain and suffering. But we've become accustomed to think that suffering and pain is somehow abnormal. But in God's kingdom and in His economy, pain and suffering is a gift. That means He's at work. That means He loves you and cares enough to not leave you the way that He found you, but is doing work, and He's shaping, and He's molding, and He is at work faithfully fulfilling His promise that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is at work perfecting faith in us. So, the first thing that I realized is that 
trials or suffering is normative in the Christian life. And I'm just going to read a couple of passages. I don't have enough time to unpack all of these, but I've included them in your worship guide so that you can circle back and look at some of these at length. But consider Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, here's the key. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. We're fellow heirs with Christ, provided, it's a caveat, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Philippians 1.29, Paul is telling the Philippians, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Did you hear that? He said, it has been granted to you, like it's a gift. It's been granted to you to suffer for His sake. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications without loud cries and tears, or with loud cries and tears, rather, to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. So, although He's the Son of God, Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And fourth one here, James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, not count some of it joy, most of it joy, but count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So hear hear the Word of God as it emanates out of the Gospels in Romans, Philippians, Hebrews, James, almost like ripples, this consistent theme that suffering is going to be a normative part of your life. There are going to be seasons of suffering and then seasons of not suffering. But recognize these seasons come because they are doing something. They are accomplishing something. Notice that James passage. It says that it's producing steadfastness. There's a product of suffering. It bears fruit, steadfastness that eventually leads to us becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, the second thing that I am learning is that suffering is very productive. It does have great value in the immediate. In Romans 5, 2 through 5, it says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice 
in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There again, joy and suffering paired together. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. It produces something. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That God has poured His love into our hearts, and it so fills us that when suffering occurs, it produces endurance. And that endurance produces character, and that character produces hope. A hope of something down the road. Consider too, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, Paul says again, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are very fragile, fractured, weak, but this really powerful treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God is residing in these weak vessels called us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That when we face a trial that seems unbearable, for some reason we're sustained. I mean, my pain for three weeks was unbearable, but I bared it. I mean, I'm still here. But I thought I wasn't going to bear it. And it's all to show that God gets the credit for my bearing it because I, I wasn't able to. So we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. One of the things that suffering and pain produces is a demonstration of the power of the gospel. The gospel and the power of the gospel is best seen in the life of a Christian who is enduring suffering. Because it's very easy for a watching world to see us when everything's happy and flowers and butterflies. Because everyone can rejoice in those times. But when a Christian endures pain and suffering and trials and public slander, death in the family, sickness, chronic pain, and yet has joy, that doesn't compute to a watching world. They look at that and go, what is up? And that's the power of the gospel. Because we go, it's, my story involves this, and it's for a reason. It's for a good reason. And I trust Him. And the world draws closer and goes, I still don't understand. How can you be like this in the midst of what you're going through? And there's a serenity, and there's a peace, and there's a joy. And the world is perplexed because it doesn't make sense. And so that's one of the things that God does 
miraculously through times of great trial. And it also brings an intimacy with God because there's a point at which the pain, the trial, the questions that you have during that season, and there's a moment. It's, it's one of those key moments where you realize that you have zero control. You have no control to stop it, to change it. This has been laid upon you, and you don't get a pick. All you can do is respond, and you either respond in faith or you respond without faith. And that's the key, because when you respond in faith, the Lord does something incredible. He doesn't change your circumstances, He changes your perspective, because your circumstances may not change, but how you see them and how you value them and the strength you have to endure them changes because He's not necessarily interested in changing your circumstances. He's interested in changing you to be like Jesus. And the third thing that I have chewed on here is that suffering is not the goal. And that was, that was important for me to recognize, that in the midst of the pain that I was experiencing and the news of cancer that I didn't know how bad it was or what it was going to do to me, I was focusing on the pain and the cancer and the unknown. And God had to change my perspective and say, that's not the goal, bud. I'm doing something with this time for something else. But your suffering and your pain, that's not the end game. It's a means to an end. Notice in 1 Peter, he's telling the church, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. So it's down the road. This thing will never be corrupt. It will never get less. It will remain as it is the moment it's promised to you, and it will remain that way in heaven. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's that word again. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that these trials have a purpose. Remember, they produce something. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So what it means to go to Jerusalem then is that you will have your faith tested 
because Jesus' story becomes your story. His journey to Jerusalem involved suffering, involved trials, literally multiple trials, pain, and ultimately death. And why are we to think that our trajectory would be any different? As we follow Him, it means going to Jerusalem, and our faith will be tested for its genuineness. So in that still, quiet moment, when you are in the midst of that trial, turn to Him. Trust by faith. And that faithfulness will increase and it will be found genuine, and it will result in your salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. He calls it light and momentary. What is he talking? He's talking about Christians that are suffering, being persecuted physically, and some are even dying, and he describes it as light, momentary affliction. That passage changed my perspective on cancer, that I could describe it as a light, momentary affliction. And then Paul's not trivializing death for the gospel. He's not trivializing suffering. He's trying to cast it in the right perspective, that it is light and momentary. This life is a mist, but it produces something of incredible value. Because these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. So Jesus went to Jerusalem so we could go to Jerusalem. He's asking us to follow Him all the way there, to take up our crosses daily and be willing to set aside our story and the efforts and the energy that we put into building up some sort of identity or value in something else. And He's saying, no, take my story because I'm giving it to you. This is your story now. Walk with me you're going to go through trials. James says, when you face trials of many kinds, not if. And so it's inevitable. That's our story. That's, it's normative. But it produces something. But keep in mind that the suffering and the trials are not the goal. There is a different goal. Hope laid up for us in heaven. A glory that is beyond comparison being conformed to the image of His likeness for those who are found in Him. And in Revelation 21, we get a picture of the Jerusalem that Jesus has in mind for us eventually. Because He did go to a physical Jerusalem that meant pain and suffering. But He went to that Jerusalem and died the death that He did and rose again to secure for us citizenship in a different Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear. It doesn't say that every tear will be wiped away. It says that he will be the one that wipes the tear away. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is the hope laid up for us in heaven. So the question is, where are you right now? Are you in a place that's pre-trial? Are you in the trial? Or are you post-trial? Don't do it alone. I have been so blessed, so blessed by the amount of people that have emailed or texted and told me they pray daily for me. And I know many of them are in this room. And I thank you. I am not alone and I don't feel alone because your prayers mean a great deal to me. But where are you? How can we come alongside you? We're a family. This Christian walk was never meant to be done alone. And so find people. Be willing to be vulnerable and share your struggles with one another. And be humble enough to accept help. Whether that's prayer, whether that's someone coming and sitting with you, whether that's you being willing to cry with somebody. That was something that I had to learn in the hospital. I'm learning how to lament. I don't question God and His goodness, but there are some times in the day I just have to cry. This is hard. It's really hard. So there was a time every afternoon at MD Anderson, I would just bury my face in a pillow and weep. And man, it felt good. And now I, know, I, can, I can appreciate what my wife does. Sometimes she's like, I just have to cry. Don't ask me. It's not a reason. I just got to cry. And I'm like, I know what that's like now. She comes up, are you okay? Yeah, I just I have to cry. I don't know. And so be willing to, to go with somebody. But where are you? And where are you going? I, I don't presume that every single person that comes through these doors on a Sunday has trusted the Lord. But I do know that even though you haven't trusted the Lord, you are going through tough times. Some of that may be brought on by yourself, some by your circumstances. But let me tell you about the hope that I can't imagine going through what I'm going through without hope, without knowing who it is that made me and crafted me the way that I am. And the only hope that I have, because there are many, many limits to medicine, Right now, my white blood count is so low, I have not responded well to the chemo in the sense that my white blood cell count is far lower than it should be. 
whatever measurement they use, they've told me that normal people are between a 5 and a 10 on some scale. They were hoping I would be at a 3. Well, on Tuesday, I was at a 0.9 white blood cell count, which means I have virtually no ability to stop sickness or germs from attacking me. By Friday, they took my blood again. I'm up to a 1, which we're trending in the right direction. But we're now praying for a miracle. We're asking God to triple it by Monday, by tomorrow. Otherwise, my treatment will be delayed. And they told me that we, can't, we don't want to have delays in your treatment because your cancer can actually become resistant to the chemo if given enough time. And so we're praying. And the, the pharmacist at the cancer infusion center said, because I said, well, what can I do? Is there something I can take? And she said, no. Right now, we'll do the medicine side, but you're at a place where you have to do the faith side. And she said, you need to pray. So that's what I do. And if you're going through a challenge or a trial and you've recognized that you do not have any control, then you must trust in Jesus Christ. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to give salvation and eternal life to those who confess that God exists and that Jesus Christ is the one that he sent, that Jesus lived and although he was God in the flesh, he took on suffering and pain and ultimately death for us and he defeated it and there will be a day when we will reside in the new Jerusalem. And I pray that if you're here and you have not trusted him, that you will today. So where are you going? So I thank you for the time to share. Thank you for putting up with some tears. I didn't need the box after all. Praise be to God. But it's okay to cry. But I would like to close in prayer and invite the worship team to come out. And we are going to go into a time of response that is actually singing the Psalm 46. And in that psalm, there's that phrase, be still and know that I am God. And, and the context of that psalm is one in which literally all things within human world are crashing down. Mountains are being thrust into the sea World powers are crumbling, cities are crumbling, everything is crashing down around the psalmist. And yet he says, you are my refuge and my strength. I will be still and know that you are God. And that's, that's where we have to respond in times of suffering and pain. So pray with me and let us respond. If you would like to come forward, I or the pastors uh, that are gathered here would love to pray with you as you go through this time.